Um, in this series of vision, we've been just talking about uh, what is vision and what vision is not. And um, last week we started with the principle of vision first comes by having a revelation of who God is. A vision is not a business plan. It's not like a trance state like of mind where I just go into um, a mad state. Uh, vision is not where I'm hallucinating. It's not the, where I'm having strange apparitions coming to me and telling me to write a new Bible. Those are not visions. Those are probably demonic experiences maybe. But a vision is first begins with a revelation of who God is. And you know that when we look at when God speaks about a vision, or when we undertake a church plant like we're, we are doing, um, vision always has to begin with God and not with us. It can't begin with who I am and what I can do. It has to begin with who is God. And we talked about that last week, about who is God and how gracious is he. And, without, and this is the first verse I want us to look at is in Proverbs 29, verse 18, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. This is the New American Standard Version, and I like how it's put in here because when there's no vision in a person's life, there's just no restraint, is there? We're just, we're out of control, aren't we? We're just like all over the place. There's no direction, there's no vision. Remember our founding pastor, Pastor Stevens, said to us one time, he said, way back in the day in a class he was doing on the Book of Romans, he said that people don't have concentration in their life because there's no consecration. Consecration in our life comes from having a view, full view of who God is. And that's when, that's when concentration comes. When you look at God and when you look at the church and Christianity today, I think it's very easy to say, what am I doing for God? You know, um, why am I not obeying God? Or why am I not able to do this for God? And that we're starting at the wrong point in our Christianity when we think that way. When you're failing in an area, when you just can't get victory in an area of our life, the temptation is to start looking at yourself and say, you know what, this is what I'm not doing. You know, by now, it's kind of midway, late January. I wonder how everybody's doing with their New Year's resolutions. <laughs> you know, this is the point where people start failing in their New Year's resolution, and they go into a state of depression. Really, this is what happens. Depression happens in January and February. And this is not really the way God thinks. God wants us to be looking at him and him alone and get our eyes off of ourselves, get our eyes off of where we're at and stop having a vision of our flesh, <laughs> getting a vision of who God is. Because when we get a vision of who he is, that's when transformation happens. And so when there's no vision of God or the word here in the Hebrew is a revelation of who God is, then we just begin to perish. You ever get into that perishing mode? I have, I've been there as a Christian. You stop looking at God, and you start sinking. And we see that happen so often in the Word of God. The second verse I want to look at, or a set of verses, is Matthew 16, verses 15 through 18. And this is where Jesus is speaking to Peter, if you remember. Uh, he is traveling through Caesarea Philippi, and he stops to his disciples, and he says to them, who do you, who do you say that I am? He already asked the disciples what people are saying about him. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? You know, who do you say that I am? And then Peter says in verse 16, thou art the Christ, or you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And then Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Again, we, I'm just quickly reiterating what we said last week, is that before Jesus tells Peter who he is and what he's going to do in the kingdom, and we're going to talk about that next week, what God has called us to do, Jesus first gets it clear about who God is in Peter's life and who Peter is in his own life. Redemption, salvation, is where God reconciles us to him. God reconciles us to God. Second aspect of salvation, God reconciles us to ourselves, where we have an understanding of who we are. That's why there's so much new age in the the church today. Churches today have so much new age because no one's talking about who they are in Christ in the church. And so Jesus says to Peter, you have this not by human concept or human understanding or human perception about Jesus, which is, can be anywhere from the, the radical that's living, the radical John the Baptist living in the desert, eating locusts and nuts. You know, there's another aspect that Jesus was like the weeping prophet Jeremiah. But, but Simon Peter Simon Barjona says, thou art the Christ. Because Peter had in his life a inner inward revelation through the Holy Spirit of who Jesus was. How many Christians have that has that not happened to? Where Christians go to church and there's no inner revelation of what's going on. They go to church, they sing the songs, they shake their hands, eat the donuts, the coffee, and then they go home. And that's it till next week. Maybe there's some activities during the week. But God wants us in Ephesians chapter one, verses seventeen through nineteen, He wants us to have an inner revelation of who He is. And that's what we're all about. This is what we're doing. This is what Ever Grace is all about. We are on a mission that we would go deeper into who God is and who we are in Christ and that we would discover our mission. Because mission without God is just another form of bondage and slavery, isn't it? It's just Christian slavery. It's just Christian bondage. And we don't need that. It's not what God has called us into. So Peter says, uh, Jesus says, And I also say unto you, Thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This is the New American Standard. This is the New King James Version. And I want to get to that verse in a second. And then the third verse I want to read this morning is, For as he thinks in his heart, in Proverbs 23, verse 7, so is he. This is the most brilliant, profound statement in psychology that exists today. So today as we talk a little bit, there's going to be a little psychology, but um, we just want to talk about who you are and who we are in Christ today and through the finished work. Because as we are thinking in our heart, so are we. The way you are thinking in your heart today is the way we are going to be. So let's just start with a few points. There's an epidemic today of low self-esteem that's expressed in the form of self-doubt and self-hate. How many have heard of people that just cut themselves? They're just cutters. They're people that just, that just live in so much hate and so much fear about themselves that they just want to, they want to injure themselves because it brings some kind of release. There's a guy in our church in Baltimore who was into this whole cutting thing and nobody knew it and, um, and he had these marks on his arms and one day he just shared with me, he says, I, I, I cut myself. And this is, I'd never heard this before. I'd never, this was like a few years ago. And I said, what, you know, and he explained to me, he said that when I do this, 
I just have a, a sense of release of anger and guilt about myself because I'm punishing myself. And this is because that there is just an epidemic today in the world of just a wrong understanding of who we are. Um, a sense of being without worth lies at the root of almost all of our personal and moral and spiritual problems. Our actions and feelings and even abilities are consistent with this self-image. So when we are living in a sense of just worthlessness, this is really going to impact every area of our life, isn't it? This is going to impact all of the areas of our life, and it's going to impact our moral life, and, and it's going to create so many spiritual problems. The point is, is that God wants to target us so that we would understand who we are in Christ, so that we would not live in anything less than who we are. We are going to act like the person that we perceive ourselves to be. Proverbs 23, verse 7. It's so important that you and I understand who God sees us to be. And I'm going to talk about that in a couple minutes. Because we are going to act the way that we perceive ourselves to be. I think, again, that overall, this world is about behavior, isn't it? Behavioral modification. You're going to hear that message all over the place. You're going to hear, don't do this, don't do that. You've got to be this way or you've got to be that way. Or... If it's not being spoken that way, it's assumed in the culture of the churches today that when you go into a church, it's not really sometimes said, but it's assumed that this is the way we act, this is what we don't act, this is what we say, this is what we don't say. And people begin to be conditioned in a church to be a certain way because that's, that is a culture of spirituality that God has never, ever put that God has never put that standard to you and I ever. And so um, so we come to this, and this is kind of like some semantics, but there is a movement today um, that is um, called the self-esteem movement. How many have heard about it? Your self-esteem. This has been around for a while. Uh, the self-improvement program. And when we look at the self-esteem movement, we need to understand that this is in, this is in contrast to what our true self-worth is. So the self-esteem movement attempts to remedy the epidemic of low self-esteem instead of the true biblical definition of who we are. Okay, self-esteem, these self-esteem movements say, you know what, you've got to feel better about yourself. You've got to you gotta do you gotta get into this training program, you gotta get into this health program, you gotta get into this education program, you gotta get into this and this and this. And then you're gonna feel better about yourself. And when you feel better about yourself, all of your problems are going to go away. You need to pl get plastic surgery. Uh, you need to change your style. Um, this is all self-esteem movement, but it has no way of doing what the Bible gives us as a definition of who we are that gives us our self-worth. And so the, the, the challenge with that is, is that today in many churches, it really begins, and not only in churches, but in our own lives, we have a general misunderstanding about what humility is. Okay, what is humility? Uh, humility is not, um, not self-negation. 
Uh, Self-negation is not part of biblical human, uh, hum humility, neither does self-condemnation. Self-negation means basically that I am just, just putting myself out, I am just putting myself down, I am just negating myself, I'm beating myself up. That is not biblical humility. That's not humility in the eyes of God. And neither is self-condemnation. As a matter of fact, self-negation and self-condemnation can be just another form of pride. Have you ever met a proud person that just beats himself up? It's just pride. Like when we beat ourselves up and we just punish ourselves and we're, you know, like that is not humility. That's not even close to humility. Sometimes we think, well, if I'm proud and I act overconfident and super, super great and super awesome and very extroverted, that's pride and that's kind of closer to sin than just beating myself up in self-negation. You know, that's not, there, you, that is not closer to humility than than pride. You know what I'm saying? Self-negation or self-condemnation or beating ourselves up is not anywhere near humility. It's actually pride. Humility, very simply, is not thinking too highly of ourselves, not thinking too lowly of ourselves, but just not living in self-occupation at all. That's what humility is. I'm not living in just self-occupation. I'm not living in self-awareness all the time. Humility is when I am just living in the uh, awesome presence of God, of who God is. Humility is when, like, when you see the proud, the, the, uh, the Apostle Paul, before he gets saved, he's on the road to Damascus, and he's about ready to just uh, kill some people for, you know, for, his, for his religion. And as he's on that road, he's on his high horse, and this is where we get this saying in English, get down off your high horse. This is where it comes from. Paul is on his horse marching on the road to Damascus, and Christ appears to him on the road, and he falls off of his horse, and he's blinded, and in a moment he's humbled. How does humility come into Paul's life? A vision of Jesus Christ. It's not some kind of God beating. Here's, here's a very interesting thing. When I traveled to former Yugoslavia, Bosnia, and Serbia uh, years ago, right after the war, I thought, you know, we're going to just meet so many humble people there, so many broken people because of the war, you know, like, you know, they're going to be really beat up, they're going to be poor, just going to be so open to God, and we got there, and I've never, ever met, and if you're listening to this online and you're Bosnia servant, please don't be offended, but at that time, when I got there, literally, we got to Sarajevo, and I was ready to go in 10 minutes. And I, I've never been that way. I was like, God, it was so hard. People were so arrogant. They were so stubborn. They just didn't, they didn't want to hear anything about God. We were preaching in the street. And I said, God, if you don't give us someone in 10 minutes, we're out of here. We're just going to go to the next city. And God gave us an amazing person. And I can tell you that story some other time. But humility is when I'm just not living in self-awareness. It just means I'm living in God consciousness. When we get overwhelmed with ourselves, when we get occupied with ourselves, when we start overthinking things, do you ever do that? Do you ever overanalyze? It's human nature, okay? Or just, I should have done this, I should have done that. Or if I did that, it would have been this way. And, and we think about decisions that we've made 20 years ago, 10 years ago, three days ago, and we are, that is not redemptive at all. You know, that is not redemptive at all. We have to understand that God being the God of redemption can take the worst thing that's ever happened in our life and make it something very beautiful. You know, 
God can take the worst mistakes, our worst failures, our worst moments of doubt, and he will change it into something very beautiful that, that no one's ever seen before. And what the devil means for bad in your life, God's going to say in his infinite wisdom and in his amazing, uh, amazing, amazingness, <laughs> he will transform that into something that you would have never imagined as something that could ever be used for God. Before we get to this point here about how do unsaved people construct their self-image, in Mark 12, verse 31, there is an interesting verse. It says, thou shalt, probably I think every Sunday school teaches this, but it's the basic law of psychology, and I think we overlook it. Um, thou shalt love the Lord thy God, right? And then it says love yourself and then love others, right? If we understand the love of God, Whenever you read that in the New Testament, thou shalt love God, just understand this. Loving God means, very simply, it's not my energy towards God. It just means I'm responding to God's first love in my life. Loving God means I'm just responding to God's first love to me. Because naturally, I don't love God. Naturally, the human nature does not love God. Actually, naturally, we are at enmity with God, aren't we? When you and I start responding to the first love of God towards us, towards you, that's when we can properly love God. You know? When Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter, the first time, two times Peter said that, he said, I like you in the Greek. He said, I like you, phileo. I like you. I think you're cool. I think it's great what you're doing. I think you're a noble person. You're, you know, really awesome things you're doing. You're doing miracles. You're helping people. I think you're pretty cool. But then in the end, Jesus asks him a third time, Peter gets a little upset, and Peter starts to get, begins to understand that God loves him even in his inability. And when we begin to understand the love of God towards us, that he first loved us, and guess what? That's going to take all of our lives. When we're 90 years old, we're going to still be figuring it. We're going to still be thinking, do God, do you love me? It's not something that happens when you become a pastor or when you finish Bible school, when you become a missionary. It's... It's, it's an eternal thing that's going on in our lives. Don't condemn yourself. First love is when I first begin to respond to the love of God. Then I begin to love myself. I'm going to love myself. When I start loving, receiving the love of God, then I'm going to start loving myself the way I need to be loved. And it doesn't mean feeding my flesh. It doesn't mean thinking, okay, I deserve this. I should just forget of everybody else and just take care of myself. You ever hear that? But we, have to, we went to a pastor's conference a few years ago, and um, it's really kind of a beautiful place in New England. Old, old house, you know, the, by a brook. It was, free, it was like November, November, and it was already, like, freezing. And we were there. I was just having an awesome time. And one of the workers there came up to me and said, I said, this is a great conference, you know. You pastors deserve this. And I was like, Okay. And, and, he, and he said to me, he said, he said, you're always taking care of the needs of other people, but you neglect yourself. And you, you deserve this. You've got to take care of yourself. And he began to talk about this. And I thought, I don't know. You know, I think that as I'm serving, I'm being ministered to myself. You know, I'm being energized as I give. I don't know about you, but when you minister to people, don't you feel energized? Like, don't you feel encouraged? And, you know, if not, then maybe we're doing it in the energy of the flesh. And so when we receive the love of God, we're starting to love ourselves properly. And when we love ourselves properly, that's how we're going to 
impact other people. And we're going to talk about that next week. But what does a person do when they don't have God in their life, that love of God? What do people do in the world? How are people doing this to build up their self-image? Well, they, they do um, three things. They, uh, they construct their self-image through the outer world, the social, their social life. You know, I need a new friend. I need a new wife. I need a new family. I, you know, they just get out on the internet and go to many of these different kinds of social sites, and they begin to try to build up their new self-image. Uh, secondly, they try to do it psychologically, and this includes um, the fallen nature's um, domination of our self-talk. You know, the inner world. Like people try to. They try to talk themselves out of feeling bad about themselves, and they begin to counsel themselves outside of the Word of God. Um, Psalm 18 says, talks about how David wanted to counsel himself not through his soul, but through his spirit, because his soul had a downward pull. His soul was was aware of its surroundings, which was aware of of the world around it, but the spirit was Christ. God conscious. And in the demonic world, Satan and his cunning wiles use our low self-image as weapons against us. And so he uses inferiority, inadequacy, inadequacy, and self-belittling. This is how people's self-image in the world is developed. But for you and I, it really boils down to this. Any thought about ourselves that is less than what God has made us as a new creation in the finished work will cause low self-esteem. Anytime that you and I are thinking about ourselves outside of who we are in Christ, we're going to go back into the old memories, we're going to go back into the old self-doubt. By the way, none of us are are exempt from it. I mean, even the best of us, best people in the world that seem to have the greatest self-image battle this. Any moment that you refer to yourself outside of who you are as a new creation in Jesus Christ, temptations will come, you're gonna you're gonna get pulled down. You're gonna get discouraged. You're gonna be you're going to be um, you're gonna be susceptible to those your weaknesses that are in your soul. Uh, that is why we need to continually be renewed in the spirit of our mind about who God is. Because whenever we get confused about ourselves, like men, we struggle with insecurity. We struggle with this sense of like insecurity. Uh, why? Because God has made us in the kingdom of God to be leaders, to be pioneers, to be, to be plowing through the kingdom of Satan and establishing the kingdom of God through, through righteousness. And, but, but the devil will attack us with just the opposite. He'll attack you with insecurity. So where we don't feel secure about what we do or what we say or, you know, or, or, or even some of the things that we've done for Christ, we, we say, wow, was that any good? Was that good? Or that was not good? And, my mother-in-law, mother-in-law is amazing. She is an incredible cook. And every time she cooks, uh, she's Polish, she'll come out of the kitchen and just sit there as we're eating her food and say, there's not enough salt. No, this isn't good. Uh, this is not tasty. I should have cooked that longer. And we're like, I'm like looking at her like, this is incredible food. What are you talking about? You know? And that's just insecurity. That's in human nature. And... It boils down to this, that whenever we think outside of, our, outside of who God's thoughts are towards us, in Psalm 29, verse 11, my thoughts towards you are not of evil. God's not on his throne today 
in conflicting thoughts about you. You ever have conflicting thoughts about somebody or about a situation like God's not worried in, in heaven about how you're doing today. You know, he's, he's very, very secure in his finished work about what Jesus has done. Even when the devil comes into his, you know, comes to him to accuse the brethren in Revelation 12, 10, to accuse you before the throne of God and accuse you before yourself, God's secure in the finished work. It's finished. It is finished. Five ways that the devil uses self-esteem. I don't need to really get into this because I think we all know this. We undervaluate ourselves and we overvaluate sin in the world. When I'm not living in my identity of who I am in Christ, the world is going to get so huge and so overpowering in my life. And I'm going to overvaluate sin. Number two, it paralyzes our potential and who we are in Christ. You, know, you ever look at our, your future and say, I don't know if God can use me. I don't know. I don't know if I'm worthy. Well, I've said this before. You aren't worthy. None of us are worthy. And that's great. <laughs> Let's just start there. I'm not worthy. And it's like, we don't have to prove anything to God. We are what we are by the grace of God. Paul said that I've been equipped to be a minister of the gospel of grace according to what? The gift of the grace of God. So that was Paul's big diploma that he had in his office that he would look at every time. I believe that that was something that he really looked to. That Think of Paul. I mean, he murdered Christians. He, he, he imprisoned women and children. I mean, this guy had a lot to be guilty about. He had a lot to be guilty about. And so he never lived in self-unworthiness. He did, but he always resolved it by thinking with God about who he was in the call. Number three, it destroys our faith dreams. God wants us to have a faith dream. When we see who God really is and how great God is, and we begin to just get on a steady diet of God in our life, instead of a steady diet of how bad I am, then you know what happens? We begin to think big with God. We start getting ideas, don't we? We start thinking like, wow, you know, maybe God could use me. Maybe God has a plan for me and my family and my kids and my future and my career. You know, like Peter saw Jesus walking on the water. And I believe that when Peter saw Jesus in the water, he had a revelation of God for that moment. And he said, you know, I want to do that too. You know, I want to do that too. And he steps out in the water and he meets Jesus in the water. Everybody points to the fact that he sunk, but I think it's awesome that he walked in the water. That's incredible. All the other guys are in the boat, kind of like, oh, that's Peter doing it again. He's just compulsive, and he's always just doing this stuff, and he's not thinking. He's not, there's no filter between the head and the mouth. He's just, but you know what? Who had the story about walking on the water that day? None of the other guys. They're all in the boat. And so we, get, we have faith dreams when we begin to think right about ourselves and who we are in Christ. A poor self-image destroys our relationships. We just sabotage ourselves and our relationships. And number five, it sabotages our effectiveness in our ministry. You ever wonder why somebody could be in ministry or just in, in an awesome situation in their family or in their life, and it looks like they make a series of decisions just to sabotage that? Do you know what it is? They just self-destroy. In some, I think it's in Proverbs 30, it talks about uh, the strange woman who just pulls down her house she just destroys everything. And it's like, why is that? Because that person really lives in hate towards themselves. So what is it? So I just want to just kind of wrap this up. What is the biblical basis for establishing our self-worth? Not our self-esteem. Self-esteem is more emotional and it's more, 
you know, self-worth. What am I worth? What am I, what do, what value do I have? How, what is the biblical basis for that? Well, let's just consider a few Bible verses. And here's just what I really want you to take home today. And if you're taking notes, just take these notes down. We are created in his image as a unique person in Genesis 1 verse 27. His creation gives us worth. You ever look at your pet? You ever, how many of you have a pet at home? A dog or a cat? Or, you ever look at it and you just, I sometimes do this with my dog. I look at my dog and I kind of look in its eyes and say, is there a soul in there? You ever do that? Like, you know, I don't know. It's, I'm kind of weird, I guess. I'm not I think our pet, pets love us because we just feed them. It has nothing to do with us. It's just my theory. I said that to my wife. Our dog loves us because we feed them. But if somebody came with better food, I don't know, maybe our dog would be out the door. I don't know what that level of loyalty is. And we are different than the creation because, because we have the image. We have a spirit. Number two, his love in Genesis 31, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 31, verse 3, God's loving, he is a loving father, and his love gives us a sense of belonging. This is important because we need to understand, this is one of the basic needs of a human being, is that we need to have a sense of belonging. Where do you belong? You know, what's my tribe? Where am I from? You know, where do I, where do I belong? And this, is, this can only happen when we begin to understand the love of God towards us. Number, number three, God has a plan for you, and he wants your heart to be his throne. His plan gives us significance. Psalm 139, verse 16. Another human basic need is a need for significance. And you see this, you see this in a little baby. Like, you know, the, a little child wants to, and I'm sure that you know about this because you have a little baby. Uh, children at a very, very early age want to, want to impact their environment. And that's why they throw the spoon off the cha- of, the, of the baby chair. You go down and pick it up, throws it back down, you pick it up. And he's understanding that he can impact his world and his little form, he can control the entire environment and he enjoys that. He loves that sense of impact and control and it gives him a sense of significance. That's part of human nature. We want that sense that I am significant, I am important. Do I mean anything to anybody? But in the eyes of God, God has a plan for us. Isn't that awesome? When I was a teenager, I was 17, and I just was really struggling with myself, my self-worth. And I just began, began to dawn on me, God has a plan for me. And I was like, wow, that's just so incredible that God has a plan for me. And this plan is an awesome plan. And this plan is based on his grace and not on me. Uh, the next one, God has gifted you. He's given you natural and spiritual gifts. And these gifts... These gifts give us competence in Ephesians 4, verse 7. Competence. Another big thing for you and I to understand that we are competent, you know. We are competent through the gifts that God has given us. If you're looking, if you're taking on a new responsibility in your life, a new job, a new position, a new thing in your life, you're going to sometimes think, do I have what it takes here to do this? I think that sometimes, you know, whenever I start something new, you know, moving to Houston here thinking, and I'll just be honest with you because I'm a human being too. Coming here as a church planter, as a leader, you know, I think, do I got what it takes to do this? You know, and you see all the other big churches here and all the awesome things going on. And you look at that and you're like, you're like, do I got what it takes? And the Holy Spirit says, you are gifted 
You are equipped. I have given you my spirit. In Jeremiah 1 verse 10, it says, Say not that I am a child, but I put my words in your mouth, and you will uproot kingdoms and nations. And that's Jeremiah, a guy who suffered a lot. And that we are competent through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then ne- ne- lastly, his death makes us acceptable. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16 through 18, he died on the cross for your sins, and his death makes us acceptable. His death makes us, or your sins are paid for. Our sins are paid for. And it's never God's will for you and I through a bad self-image to try to pay for our sins. And, you know, narcissistic people will always prey on people that have a bad self-image that they can control them because a narcissistic person is just actually starving for attention because they are so decrepit decrepit inside of their soul. And so when we live in a poor self-image, the devil's just yanking us around. He's just, we're, we're living in condemnation. We're living like the tail and not the head. And that's not God's will. And I'm not here talking about the prosperity gospel or anything like that. I'm just saying that, that in John chapter 1, I believe it's verse 12, it says, that To you who believe, one of my favorite verses, To you who believe, he has given the power to be sons of God. You know what that word power means? Authority. That means as a mom, you have authority over your, parent, over your, over your kids as a parent. You can pray, and God's going to answer that prayer. As a father, you can pray for your marriage, or as a husband, you can pray for your marriage, and God's going to answer that prayer. Why? Because you are a child of God. If you're a single person, a teenager, or whoever we are today, you are a child of God. And when you pray, we better believe and understand that our prayers are going straight to the throne of God, and they're not getting lost on the way. They are going straight to the throne of grace in Hebrews 4, verse 16, that is there at the time of need. And when we pray, God's hearing that. Um, I don't know how theologically correct this is, but I think moms have a more direct line to, to heaven than because God hears the prayers of moms. They suffer the most. They suffer the most. They're the most broken. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of joking with that a little bit. Let me just wrap this up. Our self-worth is based on our position in Christ. We are purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.19. You're purchased, you know that? You're bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We are precious. And you know something? A person's worth, something, the worth of something is directly related to what has been paid for it. For example, you ever hear of these auctions, and I can't think of one offhand, but you ever, think, you ever hear these auctions where something is being auctioned off and it's just some piece of junk somewhere and it, and it goes for like $25 million. Somebody d- discovers the value of it. Then they realize how valuable this is. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we are valuable. Our, posi- our new position in Christ is eternally secure. And I'm going to just want to finish with this, is that, you know, here we really talk a lot about eternal security in John 10, verse 28. And there's a lot of just... Um, meaning and awesomeness in this verse in John chapter 10 verse 28 where it says that no man can pluck you out of the father's hand Uh, for us to understand our self-worth and who we are we have to first begin with the fact that I am secure in my relationship with God that nothing's going to take me out of this relationship with God 
And I will tell you why I believe that. I'll tell you that because number one, because I know that there are some places that don't believe in eternal security. That, they, that there can be something that can happen that can unsave a person. And I'll tell you why I don't believe that personally. Number one, that if I could do something that could unsave my salvation, that would mean a series of things that, be, that are very scary. Number one, if I could commit a sin, and the unpardonable sin, by the way, is a sin that was, there's two different explanations for that. One of them is that it was a sin against Jesus Christ and his ministry while he was in person on the earth, ministering the kingdom of heaven. When the Pharisees rejected Christ as the Son of God, they were committing the unpardonable sin. Why? Because when you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting a Savior, and that Savior is the only one that can forgive you, and if you're rejecting the only one that can forgive you, you're not going to be forgiven, right? So if Jesus, if Jesus says it is finished, and there's something that I could do in my life that I could unfinish that, then that means that something, that my sin is greater than what Jesus did on the cross. That, that means, number two, that what Jesus said it is finished means that it's something that's not entirely true, that I could do something that could unfinish that work. Number three, if Jesus says something that's not entirely true, then that means, is Jesus really God if he's saying something that's not entirely true? And if Jesus is not God, that just takes us right down that rabbit hole, doesn't it? Into doubt, fear, and then we just are lost. We are shipwrecked. We are eternally secure. I believe that when we, are, when we are born again, that God seals us with his Holy Spirit in the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And when we are sealed with that Holy Spirit, it's like an envelope. In the Greek, it's like an envelope where you, you seal that envelope, and there's only one person that can open that envelope that's authorized to open that envelope, and that's the one that's addressed to and that is God. God is the only one that has. And that's why demons cannot possess a Christian because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How can a demon possess a person who is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Can, can demons and the Spirit of God dwell together? No. Christians can be demon, demonically oppressed and like harassed by demons, but not possessed like an unsaved person can be. And so that's why I believe that. I, there's many other verses that I could share with you today about the, about the uh, security of our salvation. I think that sometimes people would say, well, if you, are, if you believe that you're eternally secure, then does that mean we can just go out and live as a license to sin? Well, as sinners, we don't need a license to sin. We sin anyway. Uh, that, is part of sin, that is part of human nature. But if the Holy Spirit is in us and leading us and the Word of God is quickening us, there's going to be a new direction in our life. God is going to be changing us. There's going to be transformation happening. We're looking at Jesus Christ, and in Isaiah 45, verse 22, it says, Look upon me, and thou shalt be saved. And that word saved means delivered. That means as you and I are focusing on God in our life, change is happening. Transformation is happening. God is moving in our life. Um, when someone says, well, if you preach that, then people are just going to live like, well, try that. <laughs> Try being saved and living like uh, living in the flesh or in the world. We are going to be spanked so quick and so hard. God's going to spank us right back onto that narrow road. <laughs> or he's going to take us home early in 1 John 5, verse 16. He's going to just take us home early because we are, bla we, are, we are disgracing the testimony of grace. And so God does that because of, his, of our security, of our relationship. And... Uh, 
the word of God is faithful to transform us. Um, our position in Christ is just so important. It is just the most important thing, and this is really what we need to focus on because otherwise we're just going to fall into insecurity in every area of our life. Lastly, grace is what makes you who you are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, I love this. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. It is. We say it is what it is, but maybe it isn't what it is. <laughs> maybe it, it is something that really isn't what it is. I mean, by that, sometimes we look at our experience and we say, I don't know if I'm a good Christian. We are what we are by the grace of God. And Paul said that I've labored more than them all. Not that I did the laboring, but grace labored in me. And when we receive that Holy Spirit at the point of salvation, when we receive that seed, that incorruptible seed, there is something that happens in our life. We are regenerated. Now, we're a new creation, a radical different change. We, are not, we don't have the spirit of the world anymore. We don't, have the, we don't have the vocabulary of the world. We are different. And when we start ingesting and digesting that new creation and that new God in our life, Jesus Christ, what will happen to us is that our outlook about everything that we're doing in our life changes. We're going to, have, we're going to take stock in ourselves. I, I noticed this, that people come out of like the world of drugs and addictions when we were living overseas in Ukraine, and they just began to digest the love of God. And you know what? That just changed them. And their level and their standards and their, their expectations and their self-image just began to grow because they had the eternal God inside of them that that was so powerful and that was so transformational. We are what we are by the grace of God. And I just want to close with a story about a person that I read about recently that just really just impacted me. Um, and it's a woman that lived in Warsaw, Poland during World War II. Maybe you know her story. But this is a story of a person that uh, really knew who she was in the eyes of God. She was very secure about who she was in the time of the Nazi occupation of Poland and the, you know, the, the, the systematic extermination of the Jews in, in Poland. And her name was Irina Sendler. And she died not too long ago, I think about 10 years ago. She was about 98. And I'm just going to tell you her story. In World War II, she got permission to work in the Warsaw Ghetto. This ghetto was a 16-block zone in the downtown of Warsaw, where Jews were being segregated by the Nazis from the Polish population. They were being put in a 16-block region downtown where they were locked up and they were living in a ghetto-like con conditions. And what Irina would do, uh, she was a plumbing or sewer specialist. I think that would translate in today. She worked for something like Roto-Rooter or something like that. She worked in some really dirty plumbing conditions in the sewer. And she knew what was going on with the Jews in, um, in this ghetto. And what she would do is she would come in with a bag, her large tool bag of some kind, and in the bottom of it, there was enough space where she could put a little baby inside, and she would smuggle that little child out 
of the ghetto. She would go through the gates and get outside of the ghetto. And as she's leaving, she had a dog that she would take with her. And this dog, as the Nazis, this dog was trained that as, as they would approach the Nazis at the gate, these Nazi soldiers, that dog would just start barking, really barking a lot. And this was annoying and loud for the soldiers and it covered the sounds of the baby crying or making noises, and that's how she got out. And um, one day, though, she she's managed to smuggle out about 2,500 kids and infants. And one day she was caught, and the, na- the Nazis broke both of her legs, arms, and beat her severely. But when she recovered, she had kept a record of the names of all the kids she'd smuggled out and kept them in a glass jar that she had buried in the backyard of her house. And after the war, she went and located all those parents that survived and reunited these kids to these parents. These kids that she helped were placed into foster family homes or adopted or those parents that had not survived. Nobody knew about this woman. Nobody knew what she did. Nobody, she was just, a, she died. And in 2007, uh, uh, four girls girls were doing some research on something. She was in an old folks home. I don't know where it was. They discovered this woman, heard her story, and they wrote a play about it, about her life. And not too long after that, she died. The story to me speaks to me about like how we can have the proper image of who we are in Christ. And in the face of, of threat, in the face of fear, in the face of danger, we can walk with conviction for, uh, for, for people and just be part of God's plan to save lives. Amen? And she was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but she was not selected. Guess who got it instead? Al Gore for a slideshow on global warming. Is that wild? This world is so wild. I just want to finish with that, that when we know who we are, that we are by what we are by the grace of God, then the result is, is that we just do courageous things. Sometimes we fear, but we walk through that valley of the shadow of death because we know that God is with us. Amen? Let's close with prayer.